you're listening to Ted's A Deadwood Podcast in Moonville. My name is Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. And today we're going to be discussing the ninth episode of season one of Deadwood, No Other Sons or Daughters. Um, so this is a, uh, I think the past few episodes have really put together what the direction of the show, you know, um, it's less character. I don't want to say it's less character focused because the show is very character focused in general, but it's also very focused on the plot of like what's moving forward with Deadwood, where it's going, what the um, nature of uh, the town is. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think the central struggle is becoming more clear uh, as time goes on, which we're going to, we're going to get into in in the latter part of the episode. Well, now that um, Um, the the characters are more, you know, we don't really have to spend as much time introducing uh new people into the world and now that mm. the more specific relationships between particular characters are starting to kind of come to the fore like uh like with uh, uh Seth and Alma for instance and um mm. and Saul and Trixie now that we mm. yeah exactly like we are at a point to, and and the season's almost over by the way it's only 3 yeah. we're in the final uh, fourth of season 1 mm-hmm. But yeah, now the show is now in a place where it's well established. It's established itself well enough that it can get into telling stories that aren't just about, um, you know, introduce that aren't just for the purpose of establishing itself. Basically, it can spin off right, right, uh, right. in more directions. Which is interesting because it doesn't like leave the characters behind at all. I don't think the characters oh, I mean, yeah. are, but they're not. You're right. We can focus more on plot now. Uh, so yeah, on on that note, why don't we get into the. Like the first scene of the, the, the show, I think, is it, it opens on a very different version of <laughs> the Trixie-Al relationship that we've seen in the well, past. Well, it's, you know, um, we talked last week about how that scene, the scene at the end of last week was in a perfect mirror of the scene from the end of the first episode. And this is exactly a mirror of the opening scene of the second episode, I as, mm-hmm. as far as I remember. Um, but again, you know, it's... Uh, different in terms of you know we talk so much about the power dynamic between these two and i think this is a great example of trixie having uh not getting one over on him but like when the when she smiles at the end of the scene it's pretty clear that like she thinks she uh like she scored a point on him basically like she shook him mm-hmm. and that means uh it, it mean you know it, it i don't know it doesn't mean necessarily that she has power over him but the you know she's uh she's wounded him in a sense and there's not a lot of difference between the two, I guess. Um, and it, it's, it's funny that you say that, because I didn't necessarily interpret her... So, in this scene, just to recap, uh, Al is sort of trying to be casual about what happened. It's not working at all, and, and he basically uh, reveals that he was very upset that she had, uh, had tried to kill herself. Uh, and it seems like a sentiment, a sentimental moment, and and you can tell that he's more relieved than angry or anything else that she's back. And I think when he asks her not to do that again, uh, in the most unhealthy way possible, I'm not in any way describing this as a healthy uh, back and forth, but it does almost seem like he's expressing affection or that he cares for her well-being and i think that i i can't it's hard to tell if she's 
you know, smiling because she's like, oh, I got him to care about me. Or if she's smiling because she is touched by his affection for her. And I can't tell. I, I, it's hard for me to tell in this scene, which, which it well, is. Well, I don't know if it's, if she's touched by his affection so much as she is, you know, she's, she's pleased basically that, uh, what she d- well here here's what uh here's what I like about the rest of the scene in a way <laughs> to explain myself um mm-hmm. what I like about what happens before he even brings up uh her suicide attempt is that he's talking about uh we'll get into uh, a little later you know the whole the people from the government and how they want to be incorporated and he keeps he's like reassuring her like oh and you know it'll be mm-hmm. fine everything will be okay nothing's gonna change which he's clearly talking exactly yeah he's there, he's <laughs> he's you know acting kind of paternalistic but it's very clearly he's just reassuring himself um and i i think that's how he that was really revealing into how he sees trixie and what he gets out of their relationship the ability to be you know the ability to be in that position over another person basically um Mm -hmm. even when it's very clearly all about how uh you know he's feeling um and and trixie i think that when she smiles it's really about how she sees right through that and she has a modicum of power just in the fact that uh she isn't fooled basically that she can see through his kind of emotional barriers and that she really got to him, you know? Yeah. So maybe it's, maybe it's more that he's, she's content or happy with, or it's not really clear um, with the fact, but she's smiling at the fact that he he made himself vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. Or she, well, she made him vulnerable or she made him right. Or what she got a chance to see him be vulnerable, which is something he doesn't do clearly with anyone. Um, So I think that that is uh, significant uh, in that, in that moment um it's a i i really like this opening scene the last episode uh ended with um flora and miles uh flora and miles uh and their ultimate demise uh and for a good chunk of this episode maybe the first third we don't really hear about them at all until later when it becomes a sort of a central plot point um but as far as al and johnny and ellsworth and all the rest of it there's no discussion of this horrific event that concluded the last last week's episode, um, which is it's hard for me to assess what the what the purpose of that is. I mean, it, one thing that's that's for sure is that Al doesn't seem to have seems seem to care at all about what happened. Which I don't know if that that has any significance, but the fact that no one's talking about it, the fact that, by the way, the one thing that I, I, I find um, highly amusing is how much effort they went through to get Bill's murderer, um, but when, you know, whatever, Dan kills someone in front of everyone a couple episodes ago, or when these two kids die, nobody's trying to hold a trial to see, you know, if the person who killed them should be held accountable. None of that happens. Yeah. Um, so, and and so you don't see Al, you don't see you don't see Seth, um, you don't see Alma if she'd heard the news at all. You don't see anybody reacting to what happened um, in the previous episode, except for the people who were closest to it. Obviously, Eddie and uh, uh, and Joni and and Cy all have direct uh, reflection on that that scene. But there's nothing from Al or anybody at the gym. Well, I think it says something about just you know the world they're living in, where uh, death is a lot cheaper than it is in our world, and if you 
you can't expend all, you know, if you expended all your energy into caring about every single person that died, you'd have no energy left because people are just dying and getting killed all the time. And if it's, you know, I think the difference with these two is like once you uh, do something bad to another person, you know, they, they tried to kind of pull one over on the whole town, really. So they kind of like they forfeited their right to have people care about their deaths, I think. Um, nobody's really going to waste any time on, you know, caring what happened to them. I think everybody is, is aware that, you know, obviously that they were murdered. Um, well, we, we know that happened. They, of course they know that happened because they were beat up in the street, went into the Bella Union, and then didn't come out well, again. Oh, yeah. But, so at the very least, everyone knows that happened. The fact that no one's talking about it, I think, speaks more to... I mean, and also, you know, they were new to town. Nobody, nobody really knew them. Right, they didn't have connections to anyone. Is, I think Al's... Affection for Miles, at least. I, I I noted this last episode the fact that he, he seems to just switch off entirely on his interest in in Miles once he finds out that they're thieves. Uh, but it's really hammered home here that he's not at all concerned about what happened to them, or maybe they feel like it was just justice. You know, the fact that they were thieves. Uh, yeah, well, so of course they got shot or killed or whatever happened to them. Um, and maybe that's just the logic. They just they just wrote them off and said, "All right, well, you're criminals, and you'll get you know frontier justice of whatever whatever form that comes." Yeah, exactly. Um, of course, but again, when Dan killed that guy in the 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 uh, the gem, there was no context for it other than he was looking at Flora, right? <laughs> so, and nobody seemed to care about that either. Maybe it's because it depends whose auspices it's under, and maybe because Sai killed these people, no one's going to speak up against Sai, and because. Um, this person died under Al's watch. Nobody's going to speak up against Al, um, and maybe that's maybe that's the basic logic there. Uh, but yeah, it, it just it struck me because it was such a powerful ending to the last episode to then sort of cut that off uh, in this episode, or at least for the beginning, uh, when other episodes have picked up right off, um, right at the sort of the focal point of the previous episode. Um, but in any case, so we. Because we, after we get this opening scene with Al and, and Alma, we, or sorry, with Al and, and Trixie, we uh, transition over to Seth and Alma and Ellsworth. Uh, which, by the way, I, I, it's funny, in the beginning when we were first, uh, we were first getting to know all the characters and their names and, and things like that, I had mentioned that Ellsworth is an interesting character, uh, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to spoil his role in the, in the show and, uh, the fact that they take somebody who really feels like kind of a side character and they keep giving him more and more to do. Um, what did you think of this scene where uh, Ellsworth and uh, Alma and, and Seth are meeting? I mean, if you if I didn't know any better, I'd still say he seemed just like a side character. Um, well, I mean, just in so far as he's he's being dragged. Into, I mean, in the beginning, he, he was just sat at the bar where he, he saw a murder and then that was his whole role. And he was a prospector in the the mountains and that was it and he's but now he's being brought in as sort of a direct you know line of contact for alma and uh he had a whole role over at the um uh at the bella union uh a couple of a couple of episodes ago with with i guess it was more in in service of joni's uh, story arc but yeah it's just i i like how he he seems to be becoming more of a an important character as time goes. Well, on. he keeps reoccurring in other people's stories as kind of a yeah. motivator. Like when you know, he was kind of a uh, he influenced Dan's storyline and in asking him and in, in mm-hmm. saying to him like, "Look, 
please, you know, don't have me murdered. I won't say anything. And that was really more right, about right, right. Uh, Dan's conscience than anything else. Um, and yeah, and then more what happened in the Bella Union was more about Joni, and this is really more about um, about Alma and Seth in their kind of burgeoning right, relationship. Right, their relationship. Um, so he is a... What we've seen of him, he is kind of an interest. I, I like the idea... I liked him in the Bella Union. Um, learning... We I think we got to learn a little bit more about his personality. Because uh, he didn't seem, you know, like the kind of, uh, you know, gormless idiot that maybe, you know, like in the same way that Farnham is. We That's not the impression I had of him based on his interactions with Dan, but the way he's kind of taken in by, uh, by the Bella Union and, and, you know unwillingly by Joni showed us a very different uh, version of him. Well, you know, I, I in that scene, I, I got the impression he knew he was being taken for a ride and didn't particularly care. Oh, uh, okay. He doesn't... That was, a, that was at least my... I mean, honestly, I, I mean, obviously he was... The whole point was that Joni was trying to um, take him for a ride and get get as much money as possible and that's what causes the whole conflict there uh but i think he also he has to know some part some part of him has to know that what's going on is all sort of you know for show but i think the thing we've seen with ellsworth is obviously he likes to stay out of people's business he's trying to keep you know mind his own do his own thing um but i do think he has this sense of desire for companionship when it's presented to him at the very least temporary it's not like he's like oh we're me and Joni are, are getting along and this is a like a real interaction um but i think he appreciated the the facetime he got there and the reason i say that is that i and we get more humanization here specifically in the scene both explicitly from other characters we trust or know uh, and from him so we have this moment this great moment where he's making faces at uh um, at Sophie, the girl, um, which, by the way, so so did Doc Cochran. That's kind of a uh, recurring event in the uh, show and, and characters who we like and their interactions with the girl and whether or not this is an indicator of uh, moral personhood. Uh, so we have this moment with, the, the, with Sophie, which is cute uh, and endearing. And then we also have uh, Seth give his blessing to... Uh, to Ellsworth, and then also at, by the end of their conversation, Alma is also giving given her blessing to Ellsworth and believes that he's operating in her interest. So, and his, I don't know, he just seems like a warm and affectionate person, even though, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about his willing, his, his lack of willingness to speak up over the fact that Alma's husband was murdered, which, by the way, he also knows in his interaction with her, and I wonder if there's some guilt or what you know the relationship there is going to be um but yeah it's uh i i like the character and i think that we as the more we learn about him the more he i don't know at least he's he's growing on me um and he doesn't he doesn't feel like a simple i also like this this uh their conversation about prospecting and how uh he basically says in order to do this prospecting properly you're gonna have to dig down and that's not the kind of thing i can do so he doesn't lie he doesn't like say oh yeah I'll, I'll i'll be able to figure it out he's just like i can't do that but i do think you're gonna have a lot of to do it you need to do this properly because i think you have a lot of you know potentially a lot of money on your hands um and he doesn't he doesn't seem to be interested in taking her for a ride at all and and um, or trying to fleece her out of what she has uh which is i don't know i, I think they, there's a lot of signs that he's a he's a decent person yeah. um yeah 
by the way, I really I really like how this scene ends. Uh, there's a the the cinematographer in this um, uh, in this episode is is Xavier Grobit or Grobet. I don't know. He might be French or something. Um, <laughs> but he's uh, he was the cinematographer on I Love You Man or not I Love You Man. Uh, I Love You Philip Morris. Uh, and uh, several other TV shows. But there's a lot of moments throughout this episode where instead of transitioning uh, to the next scene with a cut, he, so he, in this, just as an example, in this moment, he'd, and it's, I think Steven Spielberg did this, uh, does this quite, quite frequently. Uh, he follows Seth out of the, um, out of the hotel, and then the Irish guy comes in, uh, whatever, uh, Farnham's employee comes in and so the camera just follows Seth as he walks out and the Irish guy as he walks in and it's one continuous cut and then the scene just shifts entirely into this other uh, interaction over the letter from um, from Bill's from Bill to his yeah, wife I've... so I, I like this it's a very smooth it feels like the world keeps moving it keeps a very continuous flow almost like a play I picked up on that too yeah it's really really well and I there's a couple other you know notes not in this scene but there's a recurring motif in this episode of these uh he'll start a scene on these close-ups and then he'll do mm-hmm. this rack focus to the other side of the frame and it's a wide shot um it's really cool and he keeps uh using it like there's a great example coming up uh in the next scene with al where it starts on al's face and then it rack focuses out the window all the way into the distance of what he's looking at and then back um it's really cool yeah because otherwise you know you could very easily do that with a cut, but it's a lot more visually dynamic to to do it uh, the way that it's done. And yeah, it's the, uh, the way that he'll transition from scenes, not with a cut, but just by moving the camera. That is a very Spielberg thing. And he does it a lot more in the sequence later in the episode where Al is wandering all over town telling people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say that. So he'll, So characters will enter the frame and then the camera will follow them, which is so cool. I mean, it's so organic it feels like we're following this person you know um yeah i really like that and i, lo- I love al walking all this the town we'll talk about that in a second um so do you think there's any value in this le- i don't know why i'm honestly i've seen this show and i don't remember 98 <laughs> percent of it clearly um this whole letter that farnham has from bill's that was supposed to go to bill's wife well i think we're getting more uh bill and seth parallels from beyond the grave because later in this episode, Seth talks about how he's, send- he's sending for his family to come to Deadwood. So mm, I think yeah, it's bit, yeah. possible that uh, the implication here is that that is what uh, Bill was doing with this letter. He was sending for his wife and kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it's possible anyway, um, which makes it, it... It's the only thing I can think of that would give the letter kind of this sort of immediacy that's necessary to sustain it as this element of like, it's important, it's important that Farnham has it and that it hasn't been sent basically. Um, but I thought we heard what he said. Didn't we hear in a previous episode when he was, it was right before he died. Or did we only hear? I don't think the end of it. No, I, th- I mean, we definitely saw him writing it. I don't think, it, I don't know if he ever said what it was about specifically. He definitely said who it was to at the time. I remember that, but I don't mm. know if he said specifically what it was about or if we heard any of the actual, the actual letter. Um, but that that's that was my take on it, and especially now that Charlie is running like a parcel, like a delivery place, mm. it's uh, adds an interesting wrinkle there because of well, you know <laughs> that if if that letter ever decides uh, that it wants to get sent, Charlie's the first person who's going to see it. Right. So. Right, 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 and he had the direct connection to 
acceptable. I just don't know what value that letter has. I mean, I'm, I don't know how interesting it could possibly be. Um, but Farnham's keeping it really, you know, playing his cards really close to his chest. He's not even telling, well, of course, he's not telling Al about it. Um, I just, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure Al would be like, that's nice. I, I don't care. I don't know why you're hiding that. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just for me, I, I didn't really see what the value of that letter was, but I could be missing it entirely. Um, so we'll get back to this in a second, but I, I like the idea that in order to keep the government away, um, Al has realized that he's going to need to form a municipal government. Ad hoc. Yeah, an ad hoc. <laughs> right? An ad hoc free gratis. Um, <laughs> I love that callback, yeah. That was yeah. great. <laughs> It's really good. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's funny to me that they're bringing in government in this town that has avoided it for so long. And yet they've sort of operated like a mini, at least like the bosses. And it's true of any organized crime, right? That's always been, <laughs> it has a hierarchy that follows a pretty rigid order. Uh, it's just not necessarily a legal, you know, system of government. But that is how the town has basically been run. And uh I, they figure that this is the most uh, appropriate way to um, to fend off uh, the the U.S. government or the, the to be U.S. government uh, in the territories. So um, yeah, so that's that's interesting, and that 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 gets put on the side for um, from oh, and the other thing we we learn about is that Al has an arrest warrant from Chicago. Yeah, that was somebody there. Which, that was a uh, quite the bomb that got dropped um, for murder. <laughs> he's he's been charged with murder, murder in yeah. Chicago. That. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know what to think about that. Not super surprising, I guess, but we know so little about Al's past that it's they get kind of a bombshell. Yes, I was going to say, that was like, oh, really? Somebody actually caught him? Or <laughs> like, accused him of, of, of murder? Wow, that's interesting. Um, but I like the guy, so this is the guy who was the judge, I think, in the... Yeah, they keep calling him Your Honor. I think that's, yeah. Yeah. So I guess he's some sort of judge. Uh, but I like that he's, he's so... Um, what's the word bureaucratic about his bribe taking you know he's like so uh we're gonna have a list of bribes that we're gonna need for this and also we're gonna need another bribe for the warrant that's up for your arrest but he does it so dry um (laughs) and uh it's just such a weird way of portraying this patently illegal or screwed up thing by the way the other thing that's really funny about um when they're assembling the government later, just broadly speaking, they're talking about how they need to gather bribes to fend off the government or keep the government from seizing their assets or whatever. But like, isn't that just taxes? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They're going through all this trouble, but they're like, oh, we have to bribe them with a certain amount of money that we're all going to have to contribute to. I'm like, that just sounds like taxes. I don't, I think you're just paying taxes. Well, the great joke of this episode is is that, yeah, everything that they're doing illegally is, like, no less, you know, it presents itself basically as exactly what the legitimate version uh, would do, except it's all, you know, under the table. Like, the the ad hoc government they're setting up, um, there is more or less, like, there is a structure to life in Deadwood, who has power, who doesn't, that's perfectly, like, it's it's clear to see if you if you know what's going on, um, right? So the idea that they have to set up this fake government to pretend like they're organized when they are already very well organized 
is hilarious. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a great, it's almost like a, it's, a, it's an almost satirical comment on the nature of government. <laughs> the idea that they, all right, we have to pretend like, you know, we'll make, we'll make Seth the, the health commissioner, you know, right. and we'll make Charlie the fire inspector. And we'll all pretend like we're, you know, we have all these quote unquote government jobs um, to cover up for the fact that we are much better organized in, in our, you know, shady illegal doings. Mm-hmm. Right. No, and it's 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 funny. The, the other thing that's funny about it too, I think, is how quickly Al saw the writing on the wall. Like just last episode, he was talking about having to work with Seth. Right. I think it was last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that immediately comes to head in this episode, uh, where they, you know, he's like, "I'm going to need you to 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 be participant in this." Um, but yeah, it is. It's it's farcical, and uh, and it's also farcical then in in the sense that Seth isn't chosen to be sheriff which is the only reason he volunteered to be health inspector apparently <laughs> um which is is pretty great um but yeah i mean it just it, it brought into question though i mean just to back the idea of taxes of you know when you're paying the government to protect you like that's protection money it's not all that different than like when you pay the mob to you know protect you from other gangs i mean like if you think about neighborhoods in that way, it's not really so different from the way the government works. Um, and I guess I just never thought about it that way before this episode. I just hadn't really given it that much consideration. But it's funny to to see them put it in that that sense. And I, I do wonder, not that the show needs to have a specific opinion on this, but or David Milch, um, but I do wonder if the show views because we know the characters are afraid of government coming in uh, or at least some of them are um or wary at least but i wonder what david milch thinks about government hmm. you know yeah if the show's going to take like you know the characters are resistant to it but the show sort of puts it as a benevolent force that's inevitable kind of thing or you know um because at the moment it seems to be mocking government yeah no definitely it's it's like you said farcical is a great word for it um and, and, and even beyond that, yeah, just in terms of the, the idea that uh, it's just an accepted fact that they'll have to pay bribes to the government so that they can get incorporated um, and all these ridiculous hoops they have to jump through to, you know, pretend that they to, to pretend that they are what they already are, basically. Um, yeah, it's 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 depicting government as kind of this ridiculous bureaucratic um, uh, three ring circus uh, in a in a cool yeah. way. Yeah, no, and, and it's so great. And of course, uh, since we're talking about it anyway, you gotta love Farnham. As oh, mayor. I was gonna say we, we'd be remiss if we didn't <laughs> bring up the, 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 as soon as they talk about appointments. He's the first one to chime in. He wants to be mayor, and that's the perfect encapsulation of how ridiculous this whole thing is. It's like, you know what? Sure, it's not like you know, it's not like it means anything. If you want to be mayor, go ahead. But now he's the mayor of Deadwood. That's hilarious. Which is crazy, and I think I bet historically, I bet our historic, uh, historical expert listeners uh, will know the answer to this. But I'm sure that historically he did end up mayor. I hope so. <laughs> uh, but I bet that this this story is not how he became mayor, and maybe we don't know in real life how it happened. But it would be really funny if there what that wasn't filled in, and this is sort of David Milch's idea of how this character ever would become uh, mayor of of, uh, of Deadwood would only be through this very particular set of um, 
unique circumstances, let's say. But I like that nobody nobody objects to it. Yeah. And I don't know if they feel like they're going to offend him or or what, but nobody says anything, even though they're all yeah. It's almost like, like they're just like you know what? Who cares? You know, it's it's not like yeah. He's not like he's going to have any responsibilities it's temporary, or any power. It's temporary. Yeah, it's it's ad hoc. It's um yeah. I think everyone's like, all right, you know what? I mean, it makes as much sense as anything else, right? Of all the people who are going to be well, yeah, the fake rest mayor, of them don't make any sense either. Yeah, yeah. None of the appointments. Well, and the other question is, who would be mayor? Right. I mean, Al would never do that. You know, like he, what Al? Al's not going to be mayor. No. Yeah, exactly. He's he's the so de facto he's the de facto mayor of Deadwood, but yeah, he would never take that position publicly. No. Yeah. Right, and and I think that's uh, I mean, it was that issue I had not to ruin anything in in House of Cards, um, which, by the way, I feel like I should mention <laughs> features a lot of Deadwood cast members. Um, but the thing that was always interesting about the character Frank Underwood is that. No matter what role he played, and I'll be very vague about that, uh, in the government, he was always able to control things without being the face, at least for a period of time, um, in the show. And I think that there's that idea of being the puppet master, but not having to take the responsibility and blame. Like, if you are the mayor of the town, responsibility falls on you. People come to you. Other governments will come to, you know, the U.S. government will come to talk to you. If you don't take that responsibility on, you can sort of operate in the shadows, yeah, and exactly. still retain your power, which I think is probably what he would rather. He doesn't want to be mayor, you know. <laughs> How does that help him? He already has the power; he doesn't need the title. Um, in fact, that's probably the best situation to be in. Uh, so yeah, uh, I guess before this, we'd have this. I think this is the scene where we see Al walking around trying to uh, gather everyone for this meeting, um, and I just want to point out. So we get a lot of, and we don't talk about it, I think, probably frequently enough, just because it's always just so heinous and broad. Um, but the ridiculous racism in the show against Native Americans, oh, yeah. um, American Indians, it's just, it's absurd. Um, but we also get this horrific anti-Semitism from yeah. Al every time he talks to Saul. That was crazy. It was... <laughs> I was like, holy crap. Yeah. That was really intense. Um it's so specific too, and I think that's the other thing that he he doesn't know enough about anything related to Indian culture, to even local like tribes or anything, to make any specific claims. He just makes broad, really offensive, weirdly religiously based, even though he's not very religious. Um, critiques of Native Americans which are absolutely horrible but with the he gets so weirdly personal with Saul and I think it's I think the reason we get it specifically about Saul being Jewish is in the context of the show and the relationship they're building between Saul and Trixie they're trying to establish his either animosity for Saul or I don't know, his sense of superiority to Saul. It's not really clear, but I think it does, it is meant to balance out this, or at least be the other side of what's building between Trixie and Saul. Yeah, it's a way to express, I think I think that's exactly it. It's a way to express his superiority in a way that he can't with, uh, in a way that he can't with Seth, where obviously he wants to, ex- he, he, he wants to express his superiority over everyone. Um, and he takes the opportunity with um, Saul being Jewish because that's just like an avenue to do it. Basically, right. but he doesn't have like they're both you know the, he and he and Seth have more in common than they have uncommon in tr- in terms of I guess uh, demographics, 
they have just about everything right. in common. So, well, you know, what's he supposed to... He can't really levy any slurs or insults in order to establish himself in that position of superiority over Seth. He has to do it in other ways. Um, but if, you know, if someone... If we're talking about Native Americans, if we're talking about Jewish people, if we're talking about women, um, he just takes the opportunity. You know? Yeah, exactly. Because he can. Uh, yeah, and it, it, I was thinking about... as you were, As you were saying that, I was thinking about Seth and... I think that Al may we always associated Seth with law and order and that would be the primary conflict with Al. The other reality is that Seth was a respected person where he came from and so was Bill uh, for that matter because they were both marshals or whatever, sheriffs, marshals. They were established members of the community who enforced the law. And so I think not that he's jealous but Al's never had that level of above board respect it's always been sort of fear and control that he's um hung over everybody's head uh and seth has that open sense of power that people respect and like him in the in deadwood at least from what we can see people seem to generally at least stay out of his way at the very least but it's all above board it's not because he's a criminal or a murderer necessarily even though he has killed people um it's because they know him they know his sense of justice and honor and where he came from and who he was before i think al sort of i don't know if he's envious of that like i said but there is that sense of um encroachment on his territory uh so yeah no it's it's i i think that that and the fact that he doesn't have something to dig on him is probably a good chunk a, a good chunk of the uh the reason that he takes it out on on people like saul for sure. Yeah, I mean, he takes it, I mean, that's another great point. He takes it out on Saul because, you know, that, that's also his way, I think, of taking it out on Seth um, because they're, you know, because they're partners and because they're so close. Because they're so close. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. He sees Seth as a guy who is so, who appears so kind of morally upright and immediately likable mm-hmm. to people, to the people around him. And I think he does kind of resent that this guy walks into his town who is so, um, who is everything that who appears to be to him everything that he isn't uh which is i think that's why he was so in retrospect so furious and so obsessed with the idea that he was working in cahoots with wild bill because you right. know how could this random stranger have become so you know close with wild bill hickok so quickly well it's because he's right. you know a good guy and a, and a kind of a charismatic guy um and al just doesn't have that he's he's just never he he's always going to have to manipulate people because he doesn't have that kind of natural natural magnetism he always has to kind of put it on for people absolutely and now of course the great irony here is and this is what we learned in this episode seth really doesn't want to be a sheriff yeah and i think that's really it's not what we were necessarily led to believe from the beginning right so in the first episode we saw that's what he was but he left that to go to this town to set up a hardware store i don't know that his plan was kind of vague i guess he wanted to set up a hardware store and then bring his family over um not prospect sell to prospectors because i guess prospecting was too risky um but has no interest in being in law enforcement anymore uh and yet he's functioned as sort of the sheriff of the town anyway in the in this whole interim period he's the one who makes sure that uh uh, Jack McCall faces faces some sort of justice. He dealt with the guy who lied about what happened to the family um, alongside Bill, although Bill technically was the one who killed him. But they were both doing that. They were both functioning as sheriffs. He's the one who's enforced Alma's claim um, 
And so I think it's funny that he doesn't want to be sheriff when he's effectively acting as that in the town. Like, I don't think people go, oh, that's Seth, the hardware guy. <laughs> yeah. Like, at least that's not how I view him in the show. Maybe Saul, but not Seth. Um, so it's, it's, it's funny that he was so resistant to the idea of, uh, of being sheriff. Um, and it shows that he really doesn't want, and it, and, and it's even more, like I said, it's even more ironic in the context of Al's relationship with him. He's like, oh, he represents the law, law and order. And Seth's like, I don't actually want to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to be sheriff. Um, and it's, and yeah, it's. Yeah. The fact that they don't, we don't see that conversation. We only hear about the aftermath where he says, I didn't want to be sheriff. Um, we don't see Al like nervous that he's going to say he wants to be sheriff. That never happens. Um, so maybe we're just grasping at straws here, but I do, I do think that that is an element of the show that we're, um, uh, an element of Seth's character that we're, that's definitely new. Well, no, I think, I think you're right. I think Al definitely wanted, it, it's interesting that the role of sheriff didn't come up, but he said explicitly in the last episode that, uh, Seth brings this air of, you know, justice and, and righteousness to the town. Um, and that's, you know, it, it's weird that they didn't ask him to be sheriff, I guess. I mean, it's, it's, it is... But it doesn't look like anyone was asked to be sheriff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's weird from our perspective, but it's also weird in the context of the show, within the fiction of the show, because um, that, that's exactly what Al wanted him to represent, basically. And and Seth goes into the meeting thinking that they're going to ask, assuming that they're going to ask him. So he takes a different role just to make sure that they can't. Um, and they don't. So it's, I, I hope we get to hear more about why, because if you want to look like a, you know, respectable, organized place uh, in the Old West, a sheriff is a, is a better thing to have probably than a fire inspector. <laughs> if I have learned anything by watching Westerns, it's that a sheriff is an important part of a Western town. Yes, you gotta um, have one. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's a, co- it's a coincidence, though. I think they were they're all about having health inspectors who have no power and fire marshals who have no power. And there's not been a fire as far as we've seen or anything. So all of these are really not in mayor, which doesn't seem to have any real meaning. A sheriff would have a lot to do in Deadwood. That's the thing. And I yeah. think they also are resistant to the idea of giving real positions out. They want official sounding positions that don't actually do anything, not positions where they're like, well, the sheriff should handle this. Well, the sh-. you know, if the people start thinking, oh, there's law enforcement and that you can't commit crimes, that might throw off Al's game a little bit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So you that may be another reason. Because, yeah, as soon as you make him the sheriff, uh, either you've immediately put him, you've made an enemy for yourself because he knows you are a criminal, or, right. you know, you could, you know, buy him off. But then if you're doing that, then what's even the point of having the sheriff to begin with? <laughs> right. Right, and then it's also what laws do you follow? Exactly. I mean, Deadwood what, what has the no laws. They've said that many times, so there's nothing really to enforce. I think, and I, so this is a way of having a government, but not really the whole package. And I think that's why they're willing to do this and not indulge the uh, the territory people. And they do make a good point. It was, <laughs> I like I like when they say, you know, if we don't do this, they're going to come and install their cousins and their whatever as the heads of the town and they're just going to take the everything out from under you uh so or from under us and so we need to do this that's basically al's pitch and i think that's a it's a good point um that you know what makes these random people who would come into this town more qualified than us to run the, i mean we know this town inside and out we basically run it anyway we should run it we'll have the rights to the land and all the rest of it um 
Also, can I just say, like, it's so weird seeing historical America and how, now I know this land did not belong to anybody there. This was clearly, like, Native, Native American land. Um, but they're so cavalier with, like, oh, all the land you have, if you can make some sort of claim to it, is your land. And I'm like, you know how much money that's worth or would be worth now? Mm -hmm. Just, like, huge tracts of land. Forget about the claim, the gold claim, and whether or not it's dry or what. That's just land you could live on, or you could sell, or if you keep it. Oh my God! And they're just like, eh. Well, I mean, you you know the you probably know about this, and we'll uh, if you have it, it's it's interesting. I don't remember the exact name, but like they used to do a thing where they would get everyone into the into this huge you know uh, area in one morning, and at the same time they would say, "All right, go," and you would run out in all directions and plant a flag. And just everything yep. in that radius, you own that now. Um, yeah, right. And there's great stories about a woman who, like, she got a a band of other women together, and they would, like, sneak out in the night and claim the land beforehand um, mm -hmm. for themselves. So, but yeah, but, like, that was, yeah, this is exactly that's right. Smart. That That's just how they treated it. It was just like, all right, it's 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 yours if you if you get there first, um, and no one can say it isn't. Right. <laughs> and, you know, we there, that... That organization of the country is probably still. I mean, it certainly still influences the way that our geography is is lined up now. But it's crazy that that's how it started. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also why, like, you have the whole, uh, you know, that part of the country has all these very straight lines. You know, it's very different than you see in in, in New England and um, other uh, other states on the East Coast, because uh, they they were just cutting up this land and then within it they were letting people just figure out where they wanted to be and then they just got huge chunks of like flat land i mean it's just it's, it's bizarre to me um and it's always a bit jarring to hear like oh yeah. can you imagine having retained land if you were able to get it at the time of deadwood and retain it all the way up through 2016 uh, it's just i don't know <laughs> <laughs> it blows my mind um okay so i think we should probably talk about um just briefly about the the reverend yeah let's let's um this is gonna be a real bummer um <laughs> yeah. i figured we'd do that now so we don't have to end on a bummer yeah that's nice yeah um this is really th this whole storyline is just is really sad um <laughs> yeah and it's just getting sadder and it's the reverend's the performance is excellent it, isn't it so he's good? so good the way that he just he smiles through absolutely everything. It, it makes it so much sadder just the way that he's presenting himself as he's talking about, like... Like, there's a version of this performance where he's... Uh, where he's... Just take away the smile, I think. There's a version of this performance where he's not smiling, and he's talking about, I, you know, I smell my own flesh rotting, and he's stumbling around, and he can't keep his, you know, his eyes or... Yeah, so something's going on with his eyes. Um, and it's like, well, that's horrible. But it's not as emotionally effective as this guy who we've seen from the you know first episode. I'm pretty sure, uh, with this great demeanor and he's very mm -hmm. positive, and all this terrible stuff is happening to him. But he is really steadfast in his positivity and in his in his faith. Even though, I mean, the saddest thing for me uh, was when he talks about how when he reads the Bible, he doesn't feel uh, Christ's love in his heart anymore. I was like, oh my, oh my God. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I you know, I'm we're we're not uh, Christians here, but like that wrecked me that absolutely yeah. wrecked me it's so sad you know and <laughs> it was really hard i gotta say um and i won't you know literally anything could happen now with this character right but um up to this point well just based on up to this point when we first saw 
the Reverend in the first uh, episode, I, the second I saw him on screen and how you know positive he was and healthy looking he was, I was just got real like I I welled up immediately. I was like, oh god, I can't do this character again. <laughs> I just can't. I, this is just too depressing. Um, and we're going down that road, so I, you know, bring it on, man. But phew, it's terrible. Um, and it's it's sad seeing these two other characters try and handle him, right? So we get Jane, who really is not equipped, no, in any way, <laughs> no, to to deal with him, and she's got her own issues. Um, and she just ends up she ends up like shoving him out of the tent, uh, and then she's angry at Doc Cochran for ignoring it or something. It's kind of unclear. Well, there's an well, yeah, and we we could talk about that scene later, but there's an implication I think that she has spotted something about his symptoms that uh, Cochrane hasn't. We're so di- so uh, Cochrane thinks that it's just these recurring seizures. Um, mm. But what Jane notices in this scene and probably earlier is that he's having, you know, it's it's not just the seizures anymore. He's having these symptoms that he's trying to hide, but that he, he is now failing to hide and that it's all the time for him. It's not just this thing that kind of keeps coming back. Um, and he, she tells uh, Cochrane that he's not paying attention to that. Right, and I think, but I think the reason she gets so angry is that she sees some of her own her alcoholism parallels his seizures, where people aren't listening or paying attention to that and not intervening before it's too late. And maybe she thinks she's too far gone, but she's mad that other people are ignoring his issues, um, in the context of you know his well being, and so I think. That is my f- first assumption, at least on but why the first, the first thing she he reacts says, angrily. The first thing he says in that scene is like, "Look, if this is a cry for help, then um, I'm answering it. You need to stop drinking." Um, that's not exactly what he says, but that's how he introduces himself. He's like, "Look, I know that this is a problem for you, and if you're not gonna ask, then I'm just gonna tell you what the what the deal is." Um, which and it does parallel, I think, how she treats him because she says to him, "Look." Um, I know you're scared to go to the doctor with all of this, but it's you, you just you just gotta you gotta you can't keep doing this. You're hurting other you people. You have to do it, yeah, yeah. So the other thing that that really unnerves me is the fact that I don't like I I'm not a doctor at all. <laughs> I don't know anything about medicine, um, like the biological end research maybe, but not the application. So like symptoms and things don't mean anything to me, um, but s- smelling. Oh, also, I can't smell. So <laughs> that's like a, a feature of my existence. I can't smell. So I don't know what this would be like. It sounds awful. But the fact that he feels like a zombie, <laughs> like living dead, that his he feels like his skin is rotting. I mean, what kind of hell is this? Yeah. I It, it sounds like the worst thing ever. Um I mean, he says it, and he has to say it several times in this episode before people start listening to him. And people are like, ah, that's not normal. And also, no, you don't. You smell very normal. Well, that's the thing, yeah. They, you know, medicine was rudimentary as it was back then, but mental health, they had absolutely no way of of handling whatsoever. So all that the doctor can tell him is like, look, I know you smell like rotting flesh, but uh, you don't, and it's all in your head, so... 
stop. <laughs> like, that's all he can say. He has no idea how to treat that. It's just like, he, all he can sell him is like, look, this is, this is just a, this is just something that's happening to you and you just need to, to well, trust he, me. He, he frames it, he frames it as a medical issue as like, you yeah, know, I mean, he understands it from that perspective, thing. but he can't treat it in any way. No, what he's supposed to do, I mean, break into the, I mean, yes, he could open up his head and try and deal with this. That, I mean, they did uh, try that, you know, <laughs> for these issues. It wasn't super great. Yeah, no, but it is it is technically an option. It's actually interesting that they haven't done anything like that yet because it was a, a feature, a way it was an approach, a medical approach at the time, I believe, that you could conceivably open his brain, try and, if it's a cyst or like a tumor, try and cut it out. Now, of course, we know in modern times a brain tumor is often a death sentence anyway, you know, depending on when you catch it and everything. So, And that's with modern everything, you know, really precise surgical equipment and, and sterile work environments that is not where he is now but it is it's possible it's just interesting that they haven't even he hasn't even said oh i'll just or maybe he didn't maybe he figured the seizures weren't didn't warrant such an invasive surgery but yeah it's not looking good for him at all no Um, not at all so i'm not uh i'm not feeling good about that storyline but it's intriguing and interesting i just uh, it's uh depressing um so Really cool uh, storyline with Joni and Eddie and Sai. So uh, I guess we can start with. That's kind of hard because there's a lot of like little things that that pop up here. So there's there's Joni leaving to start her business, which I think we should talk about because that's a I really like when she walks through the town. Um, but before that, there's a lot of back and forth between Sai and Joni and Eddie on what happened with the kids, which we finally get this conclusion to last week's episode. Um, so yeah, what did, what did you think about this? Um, so yeah, well, Sai is getting like scarier and scarier to me as time goes on, and he's utterly terrifying when he's drunk later in the episode. Oh, um, yeah. But yeah, I, the idea that... First of all, I didn't pick up on last week that the murders happened in Joni's room, so the idea that she would have to like go back there and continue living in that room is horrible it's absolutely horrible um so it's it's really no surprise that she's choosing now like that that was the last straw for her because you know it's continuing to work there is one thing but like how can you go back to and and how could you sleep in that room ever again oh yeah no no way um so she goes yeah she wanders through she decides that now she's gonna she's really gonna do it she's gonna strike out on her own and Sai says oh yeah no i'll totally support you um he still insists that he's he's going to be he's going to be right behind her. Um mm-hmm. and she has this kind of like panic attack as she's walking through town. Especially when she's walking through we haven't seen any of the Chinese section of Deadwood yet. This is, I think this is the first time we see any of it. Oh yeah, I think that was interesting. We we finally got to see some of the uh uh just a little bit, a little snapshot. We just see her walking by, seeing, and it was really just for the purpose of seeing the the clothes from the kids. Yeah, that was that uh, was we, pretty dark. Um, yeah. By the way, those are some really photogenic pigs. I don't know if you've ever seen a pig in real life. <laughs> um, pigs are disgusting. They're enormous. They like those pigs looked really good for a TV show. Um, that is the funniest thing that that was your observation. In this I scene. look. I, all I could think was like, that, especially if we're talking about pigs that are being fed human flesh. Um, those looked, like I said, just remarkably photogenic. <laughs> All right. Well, 
Not as a criticism, <laughs> just an observation. <laughs> no, it's not. It's just absolutely hilarious. Uh, I will be including this in the written description. Oh, good. This, I, everyone uh, should. Everyone market. should know. Hashtag photogenic things. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, it. I want to see more of the Chinese section, or at least more of Wu, and and learn. But clearly, this is not a character. They've named this character, and they want to remind us that they've hired an actor to play this character. So I do feel like Wu will be a recurring, at least background character. Well, the I'm... next episode, not to jump ahead, is called Mr. Wu. So I think oh, I think he's going to come into the narrative in a in a big way next week. Would you look at that? Would you look at that? <laughs> yeah, well, I won't, uh, won't say anything. Um, so Mr. Wu, oh, look at that. I didn't even know that was next week's episode. I'm very... Uh, very excited. So, yeah, so the, just to jump back really quickly, uh, and it's interesting, we were just talking earlier about Al and um, how he punches down yeah. <laughs> in order to assert his dominance. I think Sai does it here a little bit to, uh, I don't know if he feels bad or if he's trying to He's worried that his everyone's leaving him or that he's being rejected by the people who are close to him. Uh, but he does the same thing to Eddie, where he tries to couch the fact that he murdered two kids in front of them in Eddie's... I guess he's gay? I think that's I the... I guess so. Well, they're, you know... <laughs> or maybe he's not even. Yeah, it's... Uh... There's something to be said for this being... We, interpreting this as just kind of homophobic taunts and not confirmation of his sexuality, I wouldn't be surprised if, if you know, if they go that direction with the character. Um, now that they've that would mean it. that he's Joni and Eddie are both at least not straight. Yeah, I mean it's which would be it's, it's certainly welcome more not straight characters on the show on any on any show, <laughs> but it's it's hard to say just from this moment whether that's just him being you know mocked basically or whether that's a genuine reflection of it. I mean, whether the confusion of whether or not he's gay, you know, and whether or not he's a pedophile is coming into play right. in this scene, so I certainly don't right. want to cast but, but I, Exactly, but I, I guess I assume that was just Psy being... I mean, that's how you would interpret ass. it at the time if you were a, you know, if you were a person living at the time, they prob- those two things probably would be... Uh, oh, sure, yeah, why not? ...would be inextricable. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah. But it's... Well, it's an, it's an age-old uh, allegation, yeah. right? Um, this this association of sexuality with pedophilia, like it's related in any way. It's, but it's it's a thing that the the um, what's the L L G B community has had to L G B Q I guess community has have to has had to fend off for, you know, forever basically still. Um, so yeah, no, you would definitely see that that absurd. Uh, allegation uh, crop up here, and so it doesn't surprise me. But that's why I, I immediately was said, okay, that's not a thing for Eddie. But he might he may be gay, right? Like that may be a thing, and that's that's what he's honing in on. Um, but it just it seems to come out of nowhere, and so that's why I assume there there's some well, that's the thing, yeah. Even even for the time, stories. this is like a remarkably cruel thing to, for him to do, um, for him oh, to yeah. say. Like even given the time period, um, you know in terms of what was acceptable to say to another person or think about another person. Like if you were a decent person, you were probably a homophobe. <laughs> um, but like you didn't say it, you didn't scream it in the middle of this crowded, you know, uh, oh, yeah. building. 
for everyone to hear in this accusatory, like, uh, mocking way. Because that's, no no matter what time period you're in, like, that's just a shitty thing to do to someone. Um, so, yeah. The, but, yeah, Eddie, we, I like learning a little more about Eddie, not just in terms of that, but in terms of how this is kind of weighed on his conscience as well. That he's not just, I had gotten kind of an kind of an impression from previous episodes that he was going to be more of an extension of Psy uh, in Joni's storyline, that he was going to kind of play... Yeah, like an enabler or something. Exactly, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but no, he's he's much more aligned with Joni on this one. And he, they've... They, yeah, the it, turned and it's interesting. It, I, I, like, I like that they have moral compasses where Psy doesn't. Or that they have a, a line. Like, clearly in the past they've done criminal things together. There's this implication that... Uh, uh, whatever that guy's name, the guy who survived the smallpox. Yeah, whatever um, his name is. Andy Kramed. Yeah. Right. And so they had all done things in the past, and they Andy made some allusion to them doing a job together or something, right? And so, they, you know, are they con artists? Were they thieves? Did they rob people? You know, how did Cy make his fortune? It's not really clear. Uh, or at least his startup money, right? Um, so they clearly had were willing to break the law and do things that were, you know, definitely on the line of, of morality, you know. But murder was not necessarily, or certainly murder of kids was beyond the pale for at least some of them, but not for Sai. And if Sai was the ringleader, it makes sense, you know, there's always that one who's way too into what, what's going on and actually likes the crime part of it, not the making money part of it and wants to do things that are terrible. Uh, so seeing Eddie and... Joni respond to this. Um, and even Andy, we see... <laughs> what's funny is Andy sort of faded out as a character. Uh, but even he, after he comes in seemingly willing to or interested in doing more crime with them, you know, what is it, an episode or two ago, we saw him doing the vaccinations. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, oh, I want to give back to the community now. I've yeah, I've got a new lease on life. I want to do a good thing. So basically, Sai's the only one left from this crew who's still interested in going deeper into the criminal world. Well, what he says, I loved what he said in this scene, which is basically, you know, you guys have, you have all bought into this illusion that uh, we have a new life and that it's, you know, tabula rasa and everything we did in the past is, we don't have to think about it anymore. It's like, you know, you've all bought into that, um, but I haven't, and you need to wake up because you can't just ignore all the stuff we did together and pretend like, oh, you know, it's it's almost it's almost funny. He's like, oh, suddenly murder's too evil for you, buddy. Come on, right. you know. Uh, and it certainly suggests about whatever it makes th- you wonder. Yeah, it really does make yeah. you wonder about what whatever they engaged in in the past that they're now that some of them now are trying to uh, put behind them. But that yeah, like Sai is very uh, accepting of it. Doesn't clearly whatever they did does not weigh heavily on Sai's conscience. He's very much like, yeah, look, I did what I did, and there's no going back from it. So who cares? I'll, you know, I'll murder some, murder some kids. <laughs> it doesn't make much of a difference in uh, in terms of my uh, moral scales at this point. So who cares? Right, and and it could be his moral relativism that's making, you know, it may really be that they never did anything nearly as bad in the past, and Psy is equating them as if it's a normal progression of things. Or it may be that they did these horrible things in the past and there, but, you know, it's not clear who's got a screwed up view of what happened in the past. Um, but yeah, because they seem shook by it. It's not like, I don't want to be dragged back into this. They're like, no, I don't, this is way beyond anything we ever did. That seems to be the impression they're they're giving. Um, so yeah, I, I want to see, 
what Eddie's relationship with Sai becomes and how his relationship with Joni develops if Joni really does move out. Um, so on that note, she has this great scene where she's walking through. By the way, I love her outfit. Her outfit's always great, but it always looks very like it fits in at the Bella Union. But you see her step outside, yeah. walk across the town, hmm. and you realize how incredibly impractical and idiotic wearing an outfit like that that dress and how fancy and, and, and fantastic it looks in a frontier town where there's just mud and just like probably horse poop and just probably actually, you know, human poop, you know, just human excrement everywhere. And she has to walk through all of this, you know, in the middle of the town and it's hot. I'm sure. Like it's absurd. This whole scene is absurd. Um, as she walks through, you know, walks past Wu's pigs and all the rest of it. Uh, and it's it's kind of an interesting parallel with Charlie, who this whole episode is very concerned about his frock coat. Yeah, uh, I loved the little... And or not I loved the subplot he, about Charlie and his, and his fretting over his outfit. Right, right, especially as it comes to a head with Jane, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to it, uh, towards the end. Um, but yeah, so what did you think of this... Uh, conversation between uh charlie and Joni. i like that um i like that they're connecting i mean i first of all i just like when uh characters on the show like you talked about ellsworth being kind of a warm friendly presence that's true of a lot of characters on the show and it's easy to forget when you have characters like al and Sai who are so dominant and who right. are so really just nasty all, almost all the time um but then you have, you know, like we get a great scene with uh, Saul and Trixie later, and it's a very similar thing. It's like this is just, this is just people being oh, yeah. nice to each other, <laughs> and it's a, it's, it's a, <laughs> this is a pleasant scene to watch, and I'm enjoying these two characters interacting, and it's, you know, it's not about, uh, they're they're not trying to deceive one another, and you know, or trying to get the upper hand. There's no like real power dynamics at play. It's just, it's just two people having a, you know, friendly, polite conversation. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and that's what I love about Charlie. Charlie, what I've always liked about Charlie is the is that he is such a uh, pleasant presence in the town. He's so unassuming and and kind, and uh, just like a sweet guy. And yeah, and it's nice that um, he can be there for Joni in this moment when she clearly really needs <laughs> when she clearly really needs that presence. And he's encouraging to her too. Which I think she also knew. Like she's very ready to give it up when when they start talking. She's like, you know what? I was wrong. I should never have done this. Um, but he kind of yeah, no, he's encouraging, and he also isn't condescending or patronizing about it. Yeah, either. exactly. You know, he's like, yeah, sure, why not? Start your, you know, he's, I mean, he's a little taken aback. He's like, oh, a, a brothel. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> sure, why not? You know, like, you know, go for it. Um, and I think someone not. She didn't have support on this, right? You know, Eddie's just like, okay, you know, all right, you know, and then Sai obviously is supportive, quote unquote, but not really. Uh, and she hasn't talked to anyone else, as far as we know. So this is the first person who's like, yeah, all right, you know, sure. Um, and I think that that I, I don't know. I, and and the other thing I just want to mention on the point of uh, Joni opening a brothel is even if it's supported by Sai. Um, I wonder, like, what what do you think? Because we had talked a couple episodes uh, ago about female agency in the show and how it manifests. Does running a brothel constitute a traditionally feminine role? I don't think it does. I think 
it's effectively business owning. I mean, I don't certainly. I don't know. Alan Siren. I don't know if I think right? of that in particular as a strictly gendered profession. I mean, you hear about you know. I feel like throughout throughout pop culture, at least, it's not a. Uh, you have brothels uh, run by that you see run by men and brothels that you see run by women, and there are you right. know probably differences in depiction based on that. But I don't think of that as a specifically like she's taking a stereotypically male role. Maybe on in the context of this show, certainly, just in terms of the two brothels that we've seen, both owned by and operated by men. Um, right. So yeah, in the context of this show, she is taking a you know. A much more. I mean, opening any business, you're right, would would constitute a uh, taking on a masculine, uh, you know, profession in in the in the terms of this show. So, said is striking out on her own. It, it parallels it parallels interestingly with Alma in, in terms of how she's kind of taking things into her own hands. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't really considered that. Uh, it also contrasts with Trixie, who's not doing that well she all. echoes Trixie when she's you know in that first conversation when she's first talking to Charlie and she's saying well you know but I'm just a whore so like it echoes what Trixie says to Alma a few episodes ago true true except what they do with it is different that said the way they're subverting their respective male power figures in their life uh, is it's expressed very differently, but I don't know that one's any more or less legitimate than the other. And I think the way Trixie does it is much more secretive, but it's with Saul, uh, which we get in the... Well, I guess in the next scene we could just talk about that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so what? So you said you like the scene where um, Saul and, and uh, 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 Trixie are flirting, basically, uh, pretty openly, um, because Saul very brazenly walks into the gem saloon with the intention of flirting with her, which I was like, wow, you've got some... Maybe he doesn't understand the relationship between Al and Trixie, which may be part of it. That was the impression that I got. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think he's probably going to learn very quickly what that relationship entails. But yeah, I, I got the impression that he doesn't really... At that point, as before he walks in, he doesn't really have a grasp on what... Uh, Certainly not everything that we know about Trixie and Al's relationship and just what Trixie thinks of oh, herself. Um, so yeah, it is it is rather brazen, but I don't think he thinks of it that way. I think he's just walking in and, and flirting. Yeah, with a prostitute. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, I actually kind of, I also like the idea that Saul doesn't particularly care that she's a prostitute. He's like, so? <laughs> yeah. He, just, he acts like she's just some random person in the town. Like, oh, do you think she's pretty? He, he asks... Uh, Seth, you know, do you think she's pretty and, you know, whatever. It's just some random person to him, um, which is kind of a nice idea. Uh, I also like that Saul and Trixie basically joke about killing Al in this scene. Yeah, which... that was great. <laughs> I was like, wow, that was that was really dark, but it was so... Nobody listening would have picked that up necessarily. <laughs> um, so they were able to say it kind of openly, but... Uh, but there was this implication that they will continue seeing each other in some way or another. They'll find out way, figure out ways to, to see each other, uh, or hang out together. Yeah. Um. So, I I'm excited to see that develop a little bit more. Hopefully, it doesn't come to some sort of tragic end, um, as things with Al often do. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the last I think the last oh there's sorry two two last things. One is this great shot, um, this whole scene that happens where. Seth and Saul are facing, are sitting in chairs outside the hardware store. I love 
the framing. Yeah, it's of this great. It's it's classically western. Scene. It's you know, they're kind of silhouetted against the uh, the lights of the uh, of the saloons and stuff. Yeah, it's great. It's or or um, you know, in a different scenario, it might have been on a porch, you know, or something. Yeah. Um, uh, in some house and countryside kind of thing. Um, the only thing I this is just my personal. This isn't a critique, uh, but I do wonder um, how this scene would have worked if they had just locked the camera down and not cut, because they cut back and forth between the characters as they talk. But they could have done this whole sequence. Maybe it would have been too hard to do a, a single uncut shot um, where Saul and Seth are talking and then Saul leaves and then Charlie comes and sits down and talks to Bullock. Um, if you, you could have just locked down the camera because nothing really changes. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I figured that that might have been an interesting way to shoot this scene, um, just to keep it as sort of a sense of continuity. Um, but I still really liked it, and I like that. I think is it Seth is in front of the door, so he's framed slightly differently than the other, the characters as they come in on the side. He's more stationary, um, which I guess sort of like in the frame he's sort of stuck there. Um, but yeah, I just I really like the scene. I like with how they they have these conversations that are just very ordinary. They're like gossipy. Yeah. You know, they they gossip about, you know, what happened with, um, you know, Farnham becoming mayor and all the rest of it. Uh, Were they talking and we get, about... we get insight into Seth's, you know, his opinion on becoming sheriff. Were they talking about Cochran when they were talking? Because they, I, I, maybe I missed something, but they, did Cochran talk about being a grave robber? Is that what they were, were referring to in that scene? Um, They... Yeah. Oh, yeah. They referenced Cochran being a great robber, and I didn't understand that. Or the, no, they were saying that Seth would be because he would be the health inspector, or he'd have to go after Cochran for being a grave robber or something. That there was some responsibility, but I think it was all sort of a joke because these aren't real roles that they're ever going to have to really fulfill in any meaningful way, at least we assume. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. I do remember that, and I don't remember what the like. I didn't really understand what was going on there. Um, there is some seems to be some allegation that Cochran does something weird. Well, I mean, we know that he does. It's the first thing we see him do in this in the show, coming to the guy who's been shot in the head. So, it, yeah, but but I mean, grave robbing would be like digging up. He doesn't dig up the the body, does he? No, but it's. I mean, the idea that he would take bodies back to kind of not experiment with them, but to study them is something that's established in the show. Sure. Yeah. Maybe. I'm sure he's very interested in whatever the whatever the uh, reverend has going on in his brain. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sure. He's, <laughs> sure. Really once dark, the once I the know. reverend dies, he's gonna get right up in there. Oh god. He has this little weird screwdriver thing that yeah. he pushes through the. Anyway, uh, that's uh, depressing. Um. Oh, before we get into the last, the very last scene with Bullock and and Alma. Um, what do you think of? Oh, first of all, so we get a, a match cut of Psy and Jane. Did you notice this match cut? Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. It's so like, Psy is like, look, he's in profile, and then it cuts to Jane with her head against the wall. <laughs> I was like, why would you cut between these two characters? It's such a weird... I mean, it was a cool transition in that I always like when, you know, there's something more interesting than a simple cut. But why match cut between... And then they're literally framed exactly the same, overlapping. It's very clear. Um... But it's just like these characters have nothing in common that as seems, far as I can tell. Unless that, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a thing where just in the editor's room, the editors noticed that and they were like, oh, you could, you know, you could do like a match cut. <laughs> <laughs> For no particular reason. Yeah, maybe. You know, no real like... Uh, like a smoother transition or something. Exactly. I mean, it. <laughs> it, it's such a uh, 
it's such a striking image to cut to uh, Jane with her head against the wall. And I love, by the way, I love what Charlie says to her when he approaches. She's like, "So how much are oh they? How God, much are they paying yes. you to hold the building up?" That was really funny. <laughs> yeah. But it is. It's a you know. It's a. Uh, it's a strange image to cut to. It's not like you know. Because it's just after Cy threatened Eddie. It's not like a. It makes no sense. Well, it's just <laughs> it's a strange image in and of itself. Just not you know. It's not the sort of thing where we immediately. It's not the sort of establishing shot for a scene where we immediately understand what's going on, like an establishing shot is supposed to do. Mm. We cut to Jane standing perfectly still with her head against the wall, and we don't really, you know, we kind of very quickly get what's going on, that she's extremely drunk, but it's not the it's it's not a, like I said, establishing shots usually tell you what's going on in a scene, and this one very much uh, does not. <laughs> so I think it's it might have been you know, just to kind of, like you say, smooth out that transition. Maybe, but you know, now I'm looking at my notes in the order they come in. Just before this, I had written, Sai's support system is depressed and leaving him. And I don't know that he's so human that we can say he's depressed as a result, but he is drinking and he is sort of, seems to be shook by the fact that people are leaving. Um, and I guess in some sense, Jane's support system has left. I mean, she's lost, uh, she's lost um, Bill and then her little job is the you know managing the plague is basically over i mean she could become a doctor's assistant but that's basically you know but there's no immediate need for her so she's her usefulness and her support and all of that has sort of left and so i guess you could draw a parallel there that's probably the closest i could come up with it's just the care like so the status of the characters you could compare, maybe. But the characters themselves, obviously Jane and Cy have no relationship whatsoever. Um, at least from, you know, to, to my eye. Um, but yeah, so uh, uh, Doc Cochran talks to Jane and fails at making any sort of impression on her. Um, although I love her dialogue and it's <laughs> her waving people away in this this whole as this whole scene with, with Charlie uh, is fantastic. And I really like... Um, it actually comes to a really sad conclusion, to be honest with you. Because I think... So, first of all, she really cuts him deep with the comment about his stupid... His, his frock coat, which, by the way, I think actually looks good on him, but she calls it stupid or says uh, that he looks like an idiot. Um, which he's, you know, he's finally got some sort of uh, confidence about it because he's asked enough people who have told him it looks okay uh, throughout the episode. And Jane just cuts right to the bone without any prompting where he had to prompt other people uh, to, to ask about this code. Um, and then after making this pitch to her, ignoring her insults and trying to offer her a position at his new business where he actually needs employees anyway, and the town's not that big, uh, and he knows her, and, and I don't know how great an employee she would be, but she was pretty good at managing the plague stuff. Um, she does actually show up to his post office, almost like she was thinking about maybe taking him up on his offer before she just gives up and decides to leave. And it's all just really tragic. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think this is the last we'll see of her. I would be really sad if it was, but yeah, it is... It is. Yeah, I don't remember what happens with her next, to be honest with you, but I, I don't feel like this is the last, but I don't I don't remember, to be honest. Well, I, I, just, I just don't think that... I, based on what I've seen from this show so far, I have enough faith in the writers that they wouldn't let her character just kind of... Not peter out like that, but like... There's no real, you know, ending. It's just it, it, she decides to leave in this episode, um, which is sad. Yeah, like you say, it's a, it's a really, it's a tragic uh, 
you know, she is a tragic character in a lot of ways, but I expect that she'll be back for some reason or another. For, if for no other reason than, yeah, she, like you say, she went to the post office. There is some part of her that wants to stay and that wants to kind of reach out to Charlie or wants to reach out to Cochran or, or anyone, you know, anyone who will ground her and kind of keep her there. But she says something about, like, um, you know, I don't want to be drunk all the time in the same town where he's buried. And her solution is right, not to right. stop drinking. It's to leave. <laughs> it's to literally yeah. leave, yeah. Like, she's too ashamed for that, but she's going to leave. Um, yeah, it makes you wonder. You know, she could end up in any other frontier town or, you know. Um, but it's sad, and it's so sad when she says something like, you know, tell Bill when you get the chance or, or something. Yeah. She doesn't even stop by his, his grave to say goodbye. Ah, uh, yeah, it's really, really depressing stuff. Um, and, and Charlie, despite their weird relationship, is, you know, sad to see her go. And he's still like, you know, you can still, still hear, still do it, you know. It's, but, uh, yeah, she isn't, she isn't here I mean, yet. he really, um, he really tries really hard to get her to stay. Um, which, like, it is interesting because uh, she very clearly does not like him. Their very first interaction made that uh, yeah. abundantly clear. She doesn't like him at all, but he like he offers her. He, by the end of it, he just says, "Look, you can do anything. You can have any job. I'll give you any job." But I, because, but he wants. You know, what he doesn't say is because I want you to stay. And there is probably something to be said for the fact that um, they have a mutual grief that he can't really share with anyone else. Um, their relationship with Bill. Their relationships with Bill were both so close that they they understand what the other is going through in a way that uh, nobody else really can relate to. And Jane probably wouldn't admit that um, because you know, she probably wouldn't admit that uh, someone else was as hurt by Bill's death as she was. Just because that, that happens to people, you know, in, in grief sometimes. Oh, yeah, they yeah. They become kind of absorbed in their own feelings and it's hard to kind of understand that other people are feeling the same way because you just think about the relationship that you had with this person. It's the only relationship that you've ever experienced. You can't experience someone else's relationship with the same person. That's the only one that matters to you. Exactly, yeah, yeah. and Jane's obviously gone going through that. Um, but I think the I think that's the reason why Charlie really wants her to, first of all, because he clearly cares about her, not as an extension of Bill, but more than that, um, because they've spent time so much time together, it seems. But he also, you know, they have a bond because of Bill's death that... Uh, is really significant, and I don't think Charlie really wants to give that up. Yeah, and I, I want, I wonder. I think there's that bond, and there's also I think he doesn't really. I mean, Charlie doesn't seem to have ever talked about having a. You know, some people are more solitary, or at least pretend to be more solitary, or <laughs> whatever. And I think Charlie's more willing to admit that he he needs some sort of companionship, and as much as their relationship is. Um, tense and he, she doesn't actually like him all that much uh i think he finds some solace in just in the basic companionship you know there's that great scene earlier in was it the first or first couple of episodes maybe the third episode or something where jane and charlie are standing lookout trying to protect the kid mm. uh and she's drunk but he still stands with her and it's such a sweet moment of of camaraderie uh and i think as much as he's supporting her in this, in that moment, he also, you know, I don't know, he maybe he didn't have anything to do that night. What else is he going to do? And he decided to stand out and, uh, and, you know, be with her. And I think, 
he relies on that to some extent. He doesn't have a network of people that he cares about or talks to regularly in the town. He certainly likes Seth and Saul, but he doesn't talk to them that frequently. Although he does, I think, and, and I, so I mentioned this with Ellsworth, I think maybe even more so with Charlie, who comes and sits down next to Seth, uh, you know, after Saul leaves. I think he's genuinely is seeking, you know, companionship from people all over the town, including Joni, including Seth, including Jane, anybody who he can, you know, because Bill was his best friend. Now he doesn't really have anyone. So I think he, you're right. I think there is that, that sense for him that it's not just to support her, but to give himself somebody to, to rely on and, and talk to yeah. who might understand a little bit about what, what he lost. Yeah. Um, all right, so very last point, uh, we find we get we so we, this doesn't happen every episode, but they do drop the name of the episode almost, uh, not quite, but almost in this uh, last scene where uh, Bullock and Alma are talking about. Well, first of all, they're gossiping, which is kind of cool because that's not plot driven at all. Again, kind of like Saul and Seth's conversation from just a few like a scene earlier. Um, there's it's just a sense that you know, people in the town talk about what happened. You know, they talk about what's going on in the town and it's not to move anything forward, but rather just to see how different characters are reacting to news. Um, and it's not about the claim. It's not about, it's again, it's not, again, it's not plot related to their specific story arc at all. This is just, oh, you know, Farnham's going to be mayor and this and that and the other thing. Um, and, but then they get into a serious conversation about uh, Seth uh, inviting his, uh, wife and children or child to come and and stay with him in in Deadwood, uh, which apparently Alma had no idea about. Yeah, uh, Seth is a little weird in the scene because at first it seems like he's trying to like uh, he's trying to like cut it off basically. He's like, I, I I know we've been flirting, but this is my way of saying that I have a family and they're coming to town, so like we can't do I can't do this anymore. Um, right. Like it's his it's his polite way of talking around the issue basically is to bring this up now. Right. Um, now that he realizes that he's kind of in over his head with Alma, um, to to stop it. But then he like he weirdly like he undercuts. The, it. He leaves the door open. Oh yeah. Uh, when he's like, oh well, I mean, you know, you, she was, you know, my brother's wife uh, or my brother's widow, and uh, my my son is actually their son. So as as he says that in like, and then he leaves. So it's almost like, all right, you know. Well, and he has no other sons or daughters. Remember? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I, I know. I, so I, he's like. He's not completely um, closing off all possibility for this, basically. Which he's like, I don't. He's basically like, I don't love them, and then walks. Yeah, exactly. He's like, <laughs> out you the know, door. You know? he's, um, look, I, I, he's, he's like, look, I have a family. Wink, wink. Um, but I, I just want to let you know ahead of time. But you know, it's not, it's not really a big deal. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 interesting as a like to think about what you would do in this situation right he was for what by whatever means or circumstances and i think isn't biblically that a thing you're supposed to do yeah i was i was thinking of that yeah if your um your uh, brother dies then you're supposed to marry his wife and like like if the eldest brother dies then the young, the younger brother is supposed to marry his wife and continue on the family or or whatever yeah so it is given the time period i mean i guess there's precedent for it but still i mean even I don't know. Is I don't know if this was a common thing. Well, I mean, that's time. what I'm saying. Like, there's there is biblical precedent for it, but it still seems <laughs> like in the eighteen in the mid 1800s, this would this seems like it would still be an odd thing to do. I guess. That's what I thought, I but maybe it's 
And it depends. Maybe he comes from here. Maybe he's like Amish or something. I, you know, we don't know where he came from. That's true. Um, I mean, we have well, you know, maybe we have some great listeners who love um, telling us lots of cool historical facts that we don't know about that we make very clear that we don't know about in the episode. So if you oh, have yeah. any, if you're listening and you have any insight into whether or not it was weird to to marry your brother's widow, um, please do tell us. Please do tell us anything about history that we uh, make it clear that we don't know about. Well, I think I, the other thing that could be at play here is that we know Dave, David Milch, the creator of the show, is very interested in biblical verses and Bible stuff. So this may be a not a common thing in the time, but he wanted to do a a parallel to a biblical phenomenon or commandment or something and wanted to make a commentary on it. I'm not sure. Uh, but... But the idea, let's imagine in biblical times, right, where <laughs> this was a rule that you had to follow. Um, what do you do when you run into somebody you actually care about? Well, I mean, this is something we see in, uh, there's a lot of movies about arranged marriages and, you know, true love versus your arranged marriage and what, you know, mm-hmm. that happens all the time, I'm sure, um, in in fictional storytelling and in real life as well. Um but you do see that here where, you know, clearly he, it's not like he was, he found that maybe he was, who knows, but as far as we can tell, he doesn't seem like he's overly enamored with, he sort of did it out of duty yeah. um, for marrying this, this other woman um, and adopting the kid. So now that he's met somebody, it's, it's kind of awkward because he's obviously bound to the person he married, but you know, he clearly has feelings for Alma. That's, that's evident. Yeah. I, I don't know. be, cool to see if that develops into anything or if the if his wife and his son come to deadwood uh if that throws a wrinkle in, in the that would be a there. really i mean yeah that would kind of throw i would assume that would throw all of the <laughs> dynamics into disarray but i guess we i guess we'll have to see even if he sent the letter uh-huh. you know in this episode just based on how long stuff takes to happen in this time period they probably won't show up for quite a while yeah, right. It could be like midway through next season or something. Yeah. Um, assuming he lives that long. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that about does it for this episode. All right. Well, yeah, like we said, um, next week is uh, Mr. Wu. So. Mr. Wu. We're going to learn. Uh, we're going to learn something about this show. Something very iconic about this show. That's as much as I'll say. But okay. The okay. thing that a lot of people remember from Deadwood. I think emerges in the next episode. Anybody listening to this who's seen Deadwood will know what I'm talking about. Huh. All right. Cool. Cool. <laughs> this is cryptic as I can be. All right. I'll uh, I'll talk to you next time.